Hello, everybody, and welcome to Human Nutrition and Lifestyle Today. Today, I'm very excited to introduce our next guest on the podcast, and it is Terran, our triathlon Terran, all the way from Canada. So, Terran, if you want to tell us a bit about yourself and uh, what you do. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, so, my name is uh, Terran Gazelle. Uh, people would know me best if they start Googling online as triathlon Terran would pop up. We have... Uh, roughly around 400,000 followers and kind of in triathlon, it's a bit of a big number, but it's interesting that that number is like how many people around the world were connected with, because it really just started out as a hobby about five and a half years ago. I started making YouTube videos about triathlon, which was just the sport I loved. It was my favorite hobby. The time that I felt the most fulfilled was when I was out challenging myself, training and racing triathlon. And just thought I'd have some fun making a few videos here and there. And it's evolved into this business of now a podcast and an app and books and all kinds of things. And uh, really just trying to prove my mother wrong and be able to play for a living. So where did you come from, Tom? Was you always really sporty then or or not? Not really. I was sporty in not sporty events. I was uh, a big golfer as a kid. I ended up becoming a professional curler, which is, you know, not a real professional sport. I still had to have a day job, but I was ranked as high as 15th in the world at one time and traveled a lot for curling, but I was never naturally gifted in any sort of athletics. I always really had to work at it. Whereas somebody like my brother, if you give him a ball and you tell him the rules for a sport, he'll be world-class in the next two hours. I'm not like that. I take years and years to work at things. So whether it was golf or curling or even now triathlon, I really, really have to work at it. I'm just like every other adult amateur triathlete, but swimming was hard. Biking took me years to get fast at running. I still struggle with. And um, yeah, was, I learned the hard way early on about triathlon, about a lot of the hard lessons that, that people go through in their first few years doing endurance sports. Yeah, I'm sure we have plenty of listeners in the same boat. I know I was definitely in that boat, Yeah, especially picking up swimming as an adult. It's very hard and it, it takes a lot of work to even get moderately, uh, any any particular moderate speed there, if you haven't done it from a child, I know that much. Um, so when you started off uh, joining into triathlon, then what was the thing that kept you in it? What was the thing that kept you going, coming back for more? Well, I remember the very first race that I did. I was in my late 20s and I was still curling at the time. So I had a little bit of excitement there, but curling is very slow. I was in investment advising and the financial world is kind of slow. Again, you're just kind of moving papers from one side of the desk to the other. And I was never really fulfilled, but I didn't really realize how unfulfilled I was with all of these things that just being an adult gave you until I stepped up to that start line of the first race that I did. And all of a sudden I felt alive. I felt that feeling of nervousness of something that was important that I wanted to do well at something that I was going to be challenged by something that I didn't know the outcome of before I showed up. And I never felt that it had been years since I felt that bit of excitement because you don't feel that at work. You don't feel that sitting in traffic. You don't feel that in curling or in, just casual pool league that you might do with friends. But in triathlon, I felt that. I felt that bit of excitement and challenge and like I was trying to be a better version of myself. And that's what kept me coming back because there was always that excitement of doing something bigger than the person that I was at the time. And that seems to be what I hear from most people keeps them coming back. They want to see what they're capable of, whether it's getting on the podium at their local race or just finishing a race or seeing if they can do a half marathon or a marathon or a 5k race. It's that chasing a goal that you're not quite sure you can get that tends to excite people. And that's what got me. 
Yeah, I know for a fact that there's people listening thinking that they'll never be able to run even a 5K or a 10K or anything like that. And then on the other hand, we've got people doing Ironman triathlons. Well, you've got to start somewhere. And usually the case is, like you said, you just start on that first park run, that first 5K, whatever, and you get the buzz, you get the community, and then it just leads time after time after time, and you just progress. And it's amazing where a little bit of exercise can take you. Oh, goodness. It, it is so significant how much layering on that bit of exercise can do when it's done week after week and year after year. I went through don't drown level one and don't, don't drown level two as a kid, like the basic, basic stuff, but was never, ever a swimmer. And when I first got into triathlon, it took me an hour to swim 14 laps. And I was burping chlorine for probably about three days at my desk afterwards. And I stunk of chlorine and I couldn't breathe when I was in the water. And I had no idea how I was going to be able to do just the 300 meter swim that I had to do in the race that I was entered in. Well, fast forward to seven years after that, and I've actually been part of a few guys that we set a uh, local record for the longest open water swim ever done, going 37 kilometers in nine hours it took me. And when I hear people now say, oh, I can't, I could never do that. I could never do a triathlon. Well, I get it. I get why you think that, but you'd be really surprised at what you can do. That's right. Yeah. I think a lot of people are just scared to take that first step, but as you have shown, and as a lot of people work out that first step, once you take it, you don't look back. There's no looking back. You, generally people get hooked and, and that's it. I mean, I was for a long time into running and uh, I thought, you know, I, I, because I couldn't swim, I thought I'll never do triathlons. But similar to yourself, once you start getting in that pool and you start thinking, actually, I might be able to get to the other end at some point. <laughs> I might be able to get there and back. I might be able to get there and back and there and back, you know, and then it just progresses from there. So anybody out there who's listening and thinking, I can't do it. We was all there at one point. We was all that one person there, sat at that shallow end thinking, I'm not sure I can even make those steps halfway. <laughs> so how do you get into it? Because I hear that a lot of runners get into triathlon. Like it's the biggest draw for triathlon, that more runners become triathletes than any other sport. Well, when, when I was younger, I was running a lot of uh, cross-country running, doing a lot of um, off-roading and things like that. And I really didn't think uh, sort of on-road running was for me because I thought, you know, it hurt your knees and things like that. But I got in touch with a friend who said, no, no, come with us onto the road. You know, I'll get you some proper trainers, you know, not some off-road trainers. I'll get you some road trainers and come with us on the road and see how much you enjoy it. And I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved going faster, for one, because off-road, I was, you know, you're wondering where you're putting your feet and all this and going over styles and going over fences and muddy fields and, and getting caked up. And then when I got into road running, I was like, actually, I really, really love this road running. And I, I got a kind of a sense for speed. And then the same friend actually said, well, if you like speed, if you like going fast, get on your bike and we'll you show you bike, yeah. we'll show you how to bike so of course I was hanging out the back and he was towing me along the first few times but then after that I, you know got on the bike and and like you say went a couple of miles down the road and thought once I got home I thought you know I can go further next time and uh, and then just went out more and more with him and and hung on more and more until until I was up the same pace of him and he's like you know you're doing really really well you're keeping up why don't you you know, join us more often and come out more often. So I did. And then I was biking and then I was running. And, and then just one day I just thought, I wonder if I could swim as well. It actually, what, what triggered me was there was a local triathlon where I was and I met up with an old uh, friend from college and he was doing these triathlons. And I thought, wow, how can he do triathlons? You know, I, I thought I was a better runner than him. <laughs> so so maybe I could do this but then obviously once I got into the pool I figured out that he was much better swimmer than me but that's how I got into it really and I just uh, just knuckled down and and got into my swimming and, and tried my best I'm still not great but you know that's that's the weakest point but then once I get onto the bike I enjoy it and then the run's obviously my strongest point so that's that's how I got into it and like I say anybody listening out there who thinks they can't do something all you got to do is just go out and try yeah what this uh, is a little bit of an aside. What is fell running? I'm sure I could I could Google it, but I've heard the term a bunch of times. Doing fell runs, yeah. like is this just a free run going over hills and fences, and like you need to get from point A to point B and go figure it out? 
basically fell runs just up and down mountains, up and down high hills. You know, yeah, off-road mostly, mostly off-road. I mean, we have um, some really good triathlons in this country. I don't know if you've just seen um, Hell Vellens just being on the triathlon, which Alistair Brownlee won. Yeah, that's got a fell run in it. It's mostly cross-country. You have to even carry a backpack on your back in case the clouds come down and you can't see where you're going. You have to have a whistle and a torch and and everything Mm because you go high up into the mountains. There's actually part of it at the top, which is called the struggle. And it's hands and knees job. You're not running. Nobody's running up there. I mean, Alistair Brown is maybe on stood on on his feet, but a lot of people you see, I don't know if you've seen any footage of it at all, but if you Google Helvellyn and see some videos, you can see actually professionals scrambling up on hands and knees. It's it's proper serious stuff. So if you if you're thinking about fell running, it's uh, it, it's good. I mean, it's it's good for your strength and good for your car and good for all your stability muscles that you've got. You know, if you really want to get to the next level in running, then go out and do some fell running. You know, that's where all your little micro adjustments in your ankles and your knees and everything will help you there. Oh, I, I agree. I love trail running. We don't have too much of it here, but like hills and being out in nature and just running kind of like when you're a kid, I find that so fun. That is so, it's like youthful. I mean, there, there's biking, which is very, very similar to when you're a kid. It's still fun when you're 40 as when I was four, but running on pavement and, and in road races isn't nearly as fun as running when you're a kid. Oh, I'm looking at the pictures right now. See, this looks huh. like a blast. Yeah, this is well, like running when you're a kid. Just here, go go for a distance. And well, try that's to it. When I was talking about it, I mean, I'm looking at you on the video now, when I was talking about it and I said, scrambling on your hands and knees, you did the biggest smile ever. <laughs> you fancy a bit of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I'm looking at. I'm literally looking now at the, the picture of Alistair Brownlee who runs three minute kilometers and he, yeah, he's hiking up with a backpack on and he's scrambling up on his, well, he's, he's got one hand down. Not oh, well, there you go. There you go. One hand. Alistair's good enough to just do it with one hand. Everybody else does it with <laughs> all fours. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. I'm going to do that. To, we, yeah, we just to need over. some hills here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, go out into the Rockies. There you go. They're near to you, aren't they? And go in there. Do some yeah, it'd be a Rockies. while to get there. We're a long way away. The joke here in Winnipeg, Canada, is that you can watch your dog run away for three days. <laughs> that's how flat it is. <laughs> All right, I see. So, yeah, no no fells around there then? No, none. None. Now, basically, fell is just a uh, a word in uh, England, I suppose, for uh, a, a high hill, a very high hill, very steep high hill. So mountainous, you know, that's that's where it comes from. That's awesome strength training run. I yeah, like yeah, that. Definitely, definitely. Um, right. So anyway, we're just chatting away here, aren't we? But again, oh, yeah. Some... <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure people want to hear me get educated. About yeah. I know recently, actually, I've, I've been uh, keeping up with you recently, and I know you've been doing a lot of zone two uh, training, a lot of uh, kind of on the lower scale, the lower intensity training. And lots of people struggle with zone two training simply because I think they, they think it's not really training. It's, it's kind of going out and having a laugh, not really doing anything, not training. But I wonder if you could just highlight for um, a lot of our audience uh, what zone two training is and how important it is to you. Yeah, well, zone two, I think is one of the best things for overall health and, and high end performance. It's just, it's kind of the real secret sauce that allows people to, to endure, essentially allows people to function really well. And to try to put it really simply is there's essentially there's kind of three intensities. Some people use five zones, some people use seven zones, but really, when it comes to training and physiologically, your body reacts to three different intensities. One is low intensity, one is moderate intensity, one is high intensity, really simply. And the low intensity stuff, the zone one, zone two, if people are looking at a five zone system, this is the stuff that builds mitochondria. And mitochondria is what actually produces energy in the body. It's what takes our glucose and our fat and our air and turns all those inputs into actual energy. And the mitochondria are always working. Most adults, because we're not 
constantly active, we don't have a lot of mitochondria because we're not constantly training and walking around or farming or doing all these things we were evolved to do. So when people end up starting to do low intensity running, their heart rate shoots through the roof because they just don't have a lot of mitochondria to actually make that energy. They need the heart to pump a lot more to actually make the energy. But if you train a lot in that low intensity zone, you end up building that mitochondria. And essentially it's building you into an entirely new athlete because you're the same person, but all of a sudden now you have a whole bunch more little soldiers in your muscles making more energy for you. And what happens is your pace at which you can run at an easy pace that feels easy, that you can talk to a friend, that you don't feel gas, that you can go all day, it just gets faster and faster and faster and faster. And why it's so important to train roughly in a course of a year, about 80% of your time in this low intensity zone is because at higher intensities, your body builds up a ton of lactic acid and a lot of stress hormones and a lot of things that cause people to be injured, sick, lose motivation, feel sore, all these things that people associate more with normal training. Well, those things that they just associate with normal training are signs of your body saying this is too much. So fact of the matter is that the real secret sauce that allows you to basically set the tone for what potential you have is the zone two training because that determines how much energy you can produce. And it's hard to do and it's a long slog and it makes you feel like you're really not training when you first start out in it. And you might look at your watch and go like, how is this making me any better? Well, it is making you better because your body is going through that process and building up the mitochondria. That's right. Yeah. Like, like you say, I just want to highlight the fact that it, it builds more mitochondria in your muscles. It doesn't build, make the mitochondria any stronger or any more efficient. It just builds the amount you've got to make them more right. efficient. Then we have to turn all the way over the other side, don't we? To the hard training, to the, high really, the really top zone five training, or if you're looking at five zones, the, 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 as high as you can go, basically. So yeah. tell us yeah. a bit about why that's important too. So that stuff is important for that other 20%. The 80% is the low intensity. And if you're looking at, say, a five-zone system, we're talking zones, top of zone four and zone five. If you're looking at the three-zone system, it's just that, that third high-intensity zone. That's what takes the mitochondria, makes it more efficient, um, makes it more useful. It refines it, turns that engine, whatever engine you're starting with, into something that can function more efficiently and better. And the, the thing about that, that is kind of self-regulating is because it's so very hard, rarely do you ever have to worry about training too much in the high intensity zone because it's so hard that you can't do it for very long. Where people get caught up is that moderate intensity zone, basically that middle zone, zone three, if you're using a five zone system, zone two, if you're using a three zone system, it's that moderate intensity, that zone that actually feels like exercise where most people spend most of their time that's what does the damage that's where you can stay there for hours and hours on end you can go for a six hour bike ride in zone three and you're going to do a lot of work and you will build some mitochondria but there's a lot of downsides to it because you build a ton of lactic acid you build a lot of stress hormones it takes you four or five six days to recover from those instead of three hours. Now it's still important to spend some time in that moderate zone, but it's got to be dosed really, really carefully. Yeah, that's great. It's still important to touch in that zone because maybe some people who are doing long endurance uh, uh, races and things like that will actually be functioning in that zone for a lot of the time. So it's good to actually train and, and be in that zone for some time. But I would say like you, the most, most of your training needs to be low intensity. And that's why we say 80, 20, you know, 80 predominantly low intensity and then 20 if not 15 right up in the high intensity and then that little bit of five just to refine the central zones of zone three if you're using a five zone system yeah yeah exactly like I, I like to use that moderate intensity when you start getting close to races really just to refine your race pace and starting to train around that zone three with that zone three if you're using the five zones system zone two if you're using 
basically just moderate, the kind of hard stuff. That's where most people race. And doing a little bit of training right before a race in the two to three months before a race to get comfortable at that is when you want to spend that time. Yeah, that's great. That's excellent. That's uh, touched on that. A lot of people now will say, okay, so I'm training low intensity. Then if I'm training low intensity, what then does my nutrition have to look like? Does that mean I'm not taking in any carbohydrates? Does that mean I'm taking in more carbohydrates because I'm out there longer? What does that mean to me for nutrition purposes? Well, I am of the, the opinion that more athletes should take a, I don't call it a low carbohydrate approach because I think when I say that people hear keto and they start thinking, all right, well, if you know, less carbs is good, no carbs is probably better. So I actually think of it more of a timed carbohydrate approach where you can still have carbs by all means, have some carbs, just time it when you need it. So for example, if you're going and doing a low intensity run, a low intensity bike, you aren't really needing a whole lot of muscle glycogen and carbohydrates to perform at a peak level. You have all of the fuel that you'll ever need in your fat stores. And because you're not performing so intense a level of exercise, you don't really need all of that. So what we do on teamtrainiac.com, which is our training platform, is we have an indication for every single workout what people should be taking. For the 80% of the workouts that are that low intensity, time your carbs after a workout. And what that teaches your body to do is it teaches your body to use both carbohydrates and fat as fuel. It just gives you a greater amount of fuel source. And then you come in, you have your carbs after, and then that teaches your body to soak up carbs and store more carbs. So you get the best of both worlds. If all you're ever doing is fueling like you would for a high intensity effort where you're just carbs upon carbs upon carbs, which you need for high intensity, you're going to have your body trained to only burn carbs. And you're just going to run out of fuel when you start doing long sub-maximal races. becomes really important for a half Ironman, a half, um, a, uh, sorry, a, uh, a half Ironman, a full Ironman, a Grand Fondo, a trail run, an ultra run, something like that, where you're out there for three hours plus, that's when it really starts making a big difference. Right. So if you can train your body to make it function on its fat stores, make it burn fat rather than just burning carbohydrates the whole time, then you are going to last longer through the race. You're going to make sure you can go further and deeper into your race because you're accessing and using all your fat as fuel rather than relying on timed carbohydrates, which we've been told to do in the past, certain things like, oh, you must have a gel every 20 minutes. You must have a drink of carbohydrates every single feed stop. But if you can train your body to burn your fat stores and to make sure you run efficiently on fat, then there's no need to really worry too much about the on-course nutrition, about all the nutrition you need in the race because you're burning your fat stores. I'm not saying that the um, nutrition in a race is not important. We'll touch on that in a moment. I'm just saying if you can train your body to be able to access those fat stores, then you are becoming a much more efficient machine. Yeah, and more than anything, in addition to efficiency, as far as having this huge access of fuel to, to access during a race, if you think of it this way, in most races, you're going to burn just for easy numbers around a thousand calories an hour when you're working really hard. Most athletes are starting with around 2000 calories stored in their body. And from most studies, we find that about 60 grams of carbohydrates equaling about 240 calories is what you can comfortably ingest and eat per hour. Now you just do the math and you go for a number of hours, you're just going to run out of calories. If all you're doing is taking that 240 calories, you, you just simply run out. Now, where does the rest come from? It can only come from fat. We're not getting it from air. We can't make it like we can't just, the only way that we can make it is by burning the fat that's on our body. Now, if you have a high carbohydrate diet, you're going to burn roughly about 0.4 grams of fat stores every single minute. That's not enough to make up the difference. When you get up to being an efficient 
metabolizer of your body fat, you can get up to 1.2, 1.4, 1.6 grams of fat being burned every minute. And at that, then you can keep up to that thousand calorie burn every hour. So it's just, it's just simple math. And that's why you look on the, the side of a run course or a bike course in an Ironman and at that six, seven hour mark, it's just carnage. People are bonking. They're on the side of the road throwing up because they tried to take on so many calories because they weren't feeling very good. They're walking, they're cramping, their muscles are failing them. So they've got this weird limp. It's all because their body is just saying, I'm out of fuel. I got to shut down. But if you've got this endless supply of fat stores that you can access, which you don't need to be changing your lifestyle that much to do. You just need to kind of time some carbs around your training. You can go for days, literally days on end. So would you say then for people who are not training for people who are perhaps only the only exercise they do is kind of walking around the block with the dog or just going out for a casual meetup with their friends. Would you say then that perhaps carbohydrates are not needed at all? I know you said about keto and I don't advocate keto for anybody, but what I would say is that perhaps they could turn into being pure fat burners because they don't particularly need any carbohydrates to function throughout the day or to fuel any exercise. Yeah, that one's something that I'm still not too certain about. What I know better is fueling for endurance events. I know that about a third of the population out there tends to be younger, uh, more heavy set males will tend to do better on a extreme low carb approach of keto if they are completely sedentary. But that leaves a good two thirds of the population that it's questionable if they'll do well on it. So in theory, yeah, somebody who's not really burning any carbohydrates during the day doesn't really need them. But there are other factors at play. If you go strict keto, you might be messing around a little bit with your hormones and with appetite and lots and lots of other factors come into it. But in general, having a constant high carbohydrate diet isn't good for anyone. That's where you start getting into high levels of blood glucose constantly, which leads to diabetes, which leads to obesity, which leads to metabolic syndrome, which leads to all kinds of problems. So there is a happy medium between the typical Western diet of processed carbohydrates and keto. And I think somewhere in there is where most people would likely end up falling. That's great. I'm pleased you said that because that's exactly where we come from here. We, we, uh, human nutrition and lifestyle, what I try to advocate for everybody is a nutrient dense diet. It's just think about what you're eating. Think about how you're getting the vitamins and minerals and the essential amino acids that your body needs every single day to function. You're not going to get that sort of stuff from processed foods. You're not going to get it generally from high carbohydrate foods. You're going to get it from a lower carbohydrate type food, generally animal steering towards animal produce, although some people can access it from a plant-based diet. Um, so I'd never say don't go plant-based, but what I would say is have a go with it, see how you get on. And then if it's not for you, add in those more nutrient dense foods. And that's kind of where I try and steer people towards get your nutrient dense food. It ends up being more of a low, lower carbohydrate sort of type of nutrition. Is that something you think is uh, the way to go? Yeah, I personally have tried a very plant-based diet where about 85, 90% of my meals were really plant-based. I never noticed anything tremendously beneficial or detrimental. I know that I kind of felt dumpy towards the end of about two, three years, just a little bit of a lack of energy. I just felt better the more that I included good meats as grass-fed beef from a butcher or even better yet, organ meats like liver and things like that that are really, really rich in a lot of vitamins and nutrients. Basically, in general, the, the phrase that I really like that started becoming more common is, um, I think it's JERF, J-E-R-F, just eat real foods. And whether it's plant-based or more carnivorous and more meat-based, vast majority of these diets, when they come right down to it, they agree on the basics, which it tends to be just eat real foods. And the proportion of plants versus meat that you have just 
you know, gets pulled to one camp or the other. And personally, I don't really fall into one camp. Whatever works for you works for you. Some people do great with real foods that are just plant-based. Some people do real foods that are doing really well for them and they're just meat. And wherever you fall, you kind of have to figure out for yourself. That's it. And I think obviously the training aspect comes in to that as well. If you are just strict carnivore or you are just strict vegan on, on either ends of the, the spectrum, then I think you have to really focus on it. If you're training on it, if you're exercising on it, then where are you getting things like your carbohydrates from on one side and your protein from on the other side? So it, it does it is a big spectrum there of people. I often talk about bio-individuality and that's just that everybody's individual. I think if you manage to draw out a spectrum in your mind from something like vegan up to, up to carnivore, keto carnivore, then find out where you slot in that, in that spectrum there. And also, like you said, just eat real food. I mean, you can be a vegan nowadays and, and buy all these vegan friendly things from the supermarket and there's still, all processed foods, basically nothing in them any good. Um, so I'm talking about real food vegans and real food carnivores. There's that full spectrum. Nobody should feel alienated from one end to the other. Just find out, maybe experiment. I have, and I know you have, like you just said, experimented from one end to the other. And I, I would say something like I'm smack bang in the middle now. Um, and it, like I say, adding in exercise and training and things like that tends to push everybody into the middle, I think. Would you agree? Exactly. Because when you're training and you're out there for 10, 12, 15, 20 hours a week, that's a lot of time that you need to eat. And if you come with the preconceived requirement that you have to just eat real foods and you can't eat crap, that makes it really hard to stay strict vegan or strict carnivore. You have to start pulling in other things. You start pulling in bananas. You start pulling in eggs. You start to get the nutrients. Yeah, it just kind of pulls everything into the middle. And a funny thing that, that I found is had I called myself vegan triathlon Terran, or if I now called myself keto triathlon Terran, I would have way more followers than I currently have because everyone wants to have a camp that they fall into. But I am not of the vegan camp or the vegetarian camp or the carnivore or the keto camp. I am of the really, what does the science say? What works better for me? And really what's, what's reasonable? What is, what can you actually do? And that just starts pulling people into the middle to get all of the nutrient density and all of the calories that you need in the course of a day when you're training 10 to 25 hours a week, you kind of have to be in the middle. It just by default, you end up there. That's great. Yeah. And um, you've talked before about um, timing, particular things like timing your protein, timing your carbohydrates, timing when you have your meals. Is it really important to make sure that you time carbohydrates after an exercise? And where would you focus on making sure you got enough protein in your nutrition? Personally, I am of the opinion that after a workout is not a time to deprive yourself of anything. And I know that I am of the people that, uh, that espouse a low or timed carbohydrate approach. A lot of people will say, well, if it's a low intensity effort, don't bother including time, timed carbs after because you don't need it. You didn't really push that hard. So you didn't deplete your muscle glycogen. I am a much bigger believer that a little bit more moderation will go a lot longer for you because you're going to be able to recover from more workouts. And sure, you might not be this massive fat burning machine that doesn't have to eat for 25 hours in a row. But at the same time, you might be developing cravings and undoing that fat burning and overeat later or you might be hurting your hormones a little bit. I, personally, I would much rather just say, as a rule, have some carbohydrates after a workout, just to make sure you're, you're topped back up. Um, as far as protein goes, as the day goes on, I tend to decrease the amount of, because I work out in the morning, I tend to gradually, as the day goes on, decrease the amount of carbohydrates I have and increase the amount of protein and fats that I have throughout the day just because I 
workout in the morning. So I time the carbs around those workouts and don't work out in the evening. So that's just kind of how it ends up going for me. If people work out in the evening and not in the morning, could go the opposite way. In terms of uh, fasted workouts, then you spoke about fasted workouts. In, in terms of those, would you suggest making all fasted workouts very low intensity? Or could you incorporate a fasted workout with a high intensity, see how your body reacts, see how you're able to cope with that? Yeah, that's another thing that I go against the grain a little bit with what people recommend. That fasted workouts will have probably the best effect to train your body to access fat as fuel. However, a lot of studies just support that having fat and protein and reducing your carbs, but still eating calories before a workout have almost as good, if not an equally good training effect as a fasted workout. So when I look at it and I say, all right, well, if they both have nearly the same benefit or the benefit of one is basically negligible and it's kind of debatable if fasted workouts are that much better than just workouts that are carb restricted, but the fasted workouts do have a potential downside. And personally, what I experience is I am ravenous for days after a fasted workout that I just say, you know what, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, essentially. The risk isn't quite there. So I'm not a big proponent of fasted workouts, even though I know that some people do really well on it. Um, I just kind of look and say, you know what, I would rather keep people healthy and recommend something that I know is going to work for more, if not all people. And if that means that they don't become a fat burning machine in three months and it takes nine months instead, I'm okay with recommending that. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm, I'm of the same same way of thought there. Um, so I, I tried to touch on it a bit earlier about race day nutrition. So let's say we've uh, become fat adapted with a fat adapted athlete and uh, we don't really touch carbohydrates much during our workouts and we always fuel with carbohydrates, uh, real food carbohydrates after our workouts. Um, so we're doing a triathlon, an Ironman. We're in the middle of the bike. What's our race nutrition looking like? Well, that's funny because <laughs> when people were seeing that I was doing this more timed carbohydrate approach, again, they hear keto, they, they think that I mean keto, and I lay out my race nutrition for a half Ironman or an Ironman, and they hear that I drink about a liter of Coke in the run, and I'm having all these goos and chews and all these carbohydrates and processed foods. Well, when we are working at our absolute maximum in a race, we need a couple of things. A, we need something that tastes good. Carbohydrates taste delicious. So we need something that we can stomach and the easier something is, um, the better something is to our mouth, the easier it's going to be for us to get down when we're working at a really high effort. We also need those carbohydrates. We can't just go on fat just the same way that we run out of fuel. If we only have carbohydrates, we can run out of fuel if we only use fat. So we've got to have both. Carbohydrates break down a lot quicker. They don't sit in our stomach as long as protein and fat does. And I tend to use uh, gels, chews, bars. When I'm on the run, I prefer using Coke because Coke is the same all around the world. And I know it's going to be on course and I know it's going to work for me. So the concept that tends to be supported by studies, by athletes that we work with, by just about everyone who actually tries it is to train low. So train with lower carbohydrates to train your body how to access fat as fuel and then race high. So you race with all the carbohydrates in the world, carb load the day before, maybe carb load a couple days before if you're doing a full Ironman or an ultra endurance race to get those carbohydrate stores topped right up and then have carbs during somewhere around 40 to 60 grams of carbs per hour seems to be about the sweet spot. I know some people do well when they mix glucose and fructose and can get up to about 90 grams of carbs, but fructose can basically rip apart a stomach and a lot of people end up having problems with that. I know some nutrition companies are starting to come out with 120 grams of carbs per hour products. 
And there just isn't a whole lot of science to support anything beyond 60 grams of carbs is easy for most people to tolerate. So carb up, that's your time to have all the gels and chews and sugary things and bars and Coke that you want. Yeah, right. So save your carbs for race day. I'd just like to go a little bit against your grain there and say that. Uh, How dare you? Yeah, I am I not here. <laughs> <laughs> and just say that I believe you could, you could complete an Ironman on fat alone, just burning fat. I believe your body does have enough calories to do it. I believe you could complete any type of ultramarathon. This, the science would say you could do it, but to do it to your best ability, that's questionable. I think you need, if you want to go into the race and you want to do your PB, you want to get into the top in your age group, you want to put out the best performance you possibly can. Let's face it, who doesn't when they're going into a race? You need those carbohydrates to push you beyond where your fat stars can take you. Because I have had in the past people say, look, I can do it on my fat stars. And I believe they can. I believe you can do it on just your fat stars. If you've trained that way, if you've trained not to take in those carbohydrates, those gels, I believe you can do it. But are they getting the 100% out of themselves that they possibly could? Exactly. And I would argue no. I would argue <laughs> that yes, you definitely can. Pete Jacobs is a former Ironman world champion who has gone full carnivore because he's got some allergy issues to plant-based materials and he is racing again, but he's nowhere near where he was before. And that's kind of what we see in study after study that carbohydrates are like caffeine. Like it, it gives you more energy. It gives you more fuel. It gives you more pep in your step. So can you finish? With just your fat stores, I would say, yeah, if you're really, really well fat adapted, I just don't really recommend it because you're not going to have nearly as good a day. Yeah, right. And you're not going to get the best out of yourself that you could get. And that, and on race day, you want to get the best out of yourself. You want to make sure all that training, all that zone two is going to pay off and you want to get the best out of yourself on race day. So like you said, go mad for it. Have your carbohydrates on race day. Just make sure that I always tell people as well, even in general nutrition, not just in training nutrition, that if 90 to 95% of your nutrition is what you want it to be, what we want you to be, you just eat real food and make sure you're getting nutrient density in there. If that makes up 90 to 95% of your diet, then who cares what the other 5% is? Go out and have a bit of cake. Go out and have a drink of alcohol, you know. So it works the same as training. If you have got a 90%, 95% proof, nutrient-dense, nailed-on, real food diet that you want, then your race day is your 5%. Go out there and smash your bottles of Coke and as many gels as you like. That's the time to do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And something that, that I'll mention here is if there's anyone listening that that is is say somebody who follows me and they're listening and saying, well, Taryn, haven't you been going through a lot of health problems here in 2020? And I'll admit, yeah, and say, yes, I have. Where we start tracing my health problems now back to is years ago, 2016, 2017, where I ate a lot more processed foods, where I was eating a lot of processed foods while training. And sort of what we've traced it back to is a lot of those processed foods, a lot of that unhealthy lifestyle that I had when I was younger, where I didn't really just eat real foods. I didn't really take care of balancing overall health and what I was putting into my body. And I didn't balance zone two training properly. That all built up. And at the time, it didn't feel like I was really doing any damage because I'm rocking around like, hey, I'm doing triathlons. I'm feeling good. Look at me. I'm, I'm making progress. I'm surviving. I've got a new business. Everything's going well. Well, it catches up at some point. And maybe it'll catch up when somebody's 70 or 75 or when they're 60. In my case, it caught up to me when I started getting into 2017, 2018, when I really started ramping up my training. And what ended up happening was all of that kind of, you know, a fancy word for this is like dysbiosis. Essentially, things weren't aligned in my body. And I started training a lot. And even though I was eating a lot, I had uh, a stomach infection that we're still fighting right now. And essentially, that stomach infection, this is the theory that when we start tracing back all of the, the tests that we've ran, 
the stomach infection was eating my food for me, essentially. It wasn't allowing me to absorb any of the food. So here I am training away, eating tons, and I'm thinking, you know, I've got all the calories that I'll ever need, but I'm just underfueled because I can't even absorb it. And the weird thing about it is when that started happening, I actually lost a ton of weight and I'm going, holy smokes, I'm a total stud here. Look at me. Well, the reason I lost that weight is because my body was saying, well, I'm not getting any food from Taryn actually eating, I'm not absorbing any of it. Well, I got to get it from somewhere. So it started eating my fat and I went down to 149 pounds, still performing well, but then it started catching up to me. So this whole thing where, you know, we have a lot of people that say, follow me and and are maybe following me for the wrong reasons and maybe don't have a whole lot of online etiquette. And they start saying, well, Taryn's talking about low carb and just eat real food. Well, look at them now. Well, the reason that I am having these health issues that I finally now have to address in 2020 isn't because of the just eat real food and the lower carb. It's because of the higher carb and the processed foods that happened years ago. And the just eat real food and the timed carbohydrate approach is part of how we're fixing it. Yeah, that's great. I'm pleased you said that because there's so many people out there, especially younger um, in the kind of 20s type of triathletes and, and athletes that I see about. And they say, oh, I can eat what I want. I can, I can eat pizza on top of pizza. I can, I can eat packets of crisps. I can eat processed food till it's coming out of my ears and I'm perfectly fine. Uh, it's, it works for me. And I just say, look, it'll, it'll catch up with you. It, it will eventually catch up if you're not fueling your body and what it needs and what it's really have after to thrive on to to produce the best it can it will catch up on you and, and on my podcast i talk a lot about people avoiding chronic disease i mean I've, I've spoke before about some people get to the accident and then think how did we get here why not avoid the accident in the first place make mm -hmm. sure you eat your real food now to avoid problems in the future and that's what I talk about. And I, I just can't seem to get across to, to the younger generation of athletes. I mean, I'm now in my late 30s. And I believe that once you start getting over 35, that's when you start realizing, hang on a minute, I'm going to have to really look at what's going on here. <laughs> but yeah. to the, especially more to the, I'm not, not singling out the younger generation, but it seems to be more in the younger type of 20s to 30s category. They say, I can eat what I want. It does, it, the, all this that you're talking about, it just doesn't resonate with me. I just don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I think that's natural that I've got friends on both ends of the spectrum. We've got some friends that are young and really far ahead of it. And I go over to their place and like, holy smokes, do you have any junk food whatsoever? And on the flip side, then I've got other friends that are in their late 40s and experiencing the same thing that I took until they were about 45. And they are just chronically injured over and over and they eat really well now. But I speculate that that might have something to do with how they lived in their 20s and 30s where they were overweight, they didn't eat a whole lot. And I think it ends up manifesting itself down the road. And this is really anecdotal and I don't really have a lot of evidence or studies, but I think something that's interesting is if you look at, say, my grandpa's generation, they grew up on farms where if they wanted a carrot, they pulled it out of the ground and they ate the dirt and the microbiome and like all of these good things. And like my grandpa was like a cockroach. You could not kill the guy. <laughs> like he, they just lasted for forever and didn't do anything to take care of their health. Well, they had 20 years growing up of eating just real foods because it's literally all they had. And just fast forward to people that are, say, 20 years younger. My, my grandpa just passed away a couple of years ago. Um, I think he was early 90s. And you look at people that are maybe just 20, 25 years younger than him, where processed foods started coming in. Well, that's where you start getting the heart disease and the diabetes, but like that, like that 90 years old or like that really old generation that they aren't a lot around a lot. You just hear so many stories of them being so hardy and living for so long and still being like having that, that old man farmer strength still when they're 85 and like could crush your hand with a handshake. But the younger generation is falling apart. And that's, you know, it's kind of anecdotal and I don't really have a lot of evidence, but it's just something that I think about that. I wonder if it's because they basically they they paid the price of good health 
um, or they paid the cost of good health when they were younger and it carried through their entire life. Yeah, I definitely think there's a generational thing there. I mean, our grandparents and, and great grandparents definitely knew what was good for them. And, and, and I mean, there wasn't as much processed food out as there is now, as there was back then. So we can't fully blame it all on the current generation because marketing and things has a lot to do with it. I mean, our grandparents, uh, especially great grandparents going through the war, basically had to grow their own things to, to eat. You know, so um, it, it has got a lot to do with what's pushed on to the younger generation as well. We can't just say, look, you're doing this. It's your fault. You're to blame. I think there's a, a bigger spectrum there about what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's just part of culture. And yeah. I'll be honest, it's hard to eat good. It's hard yeah. to eat. I mean, I, I espouse just eating real food and I've had an energy bar, um, like a low carb energy bar today. And might have tacos later for, for dinner. Um, but that I find that 80 to 90% balance where the majority of your food is the just eat real food makes doing it every single day easier. When you can have a little piece of dark chocolate, or you can have an, a low carb energy bar that tastes a little good, you know, tastes kind of sweet, sweetened with stevia or monk fruit instead of instead of sugar, like making these small little changes with maybe a little bit of processed food here or there. Uh, I find that personally, it, it just makes it easier to do day after day for decades instead of, all right, well, I've got to be so strict that I can't function. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we, we talk about the, the 80, 90, 95% of our diet being the, the real food. I think nowadays, a lot of people have got it flipped the other way around, whereas they have 10% uh, of their diet real food, and then the rest is not. The rest is, is the processed food. So what we need to do is we just need to flip that around and make sure that we're going to have treats. Everybody wants a treat every now and again. Just make it that very little 5 to 10% there in the end we, we spoke about that so Taryn I, I value your time I don't want to keep you too long here on the podcast uh, I know well, I'm not nearly as busy as people think <laughs> <laughs> one thing I wanted to ask you was uh, I, I do follow you and I have been looking on your YouTube and your Instagram things looking for clues whether or not you're still training to go to Kona yeah that's the plan at some point in my life the the plan that I've got right now is I'm committing to just focusing on health for 2020, still going through fixing up my stomach. And just before this call, I was getting a little treatment and all things are trending in the right direction. Actually, I have a call with the functional medicine doctor that I'm working with in uh, two days. And things seem to be going really well, seem to be getting over that stomach infection, um, weight is moderated in a kind of a good place right now, but I want to just commit to following that protocol until the end of 2020 because there's no race. So it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to go and try to turn myself inside out and train for nothing. At the end of the year, I want to retest hormone levels and, and see if the stomach infection is completely gone, make sure my, my digestive tract and the entire system and, and all, all levels of nutrients and brain function and everything is just going really well. So I'll do that at the end of the year. And if all systems are go, I'll start training again to try to qualify for Kona. One thing, and this is a bit of a spoiler alert that I, I think I've decided, but who knows, maybe I'll take one crack at it and change my mind is I have learned in 2020 that I don't want to sacrifice my long-term health for trying to get to a race. So I think when I try to qualify for Kona, I'm going to go all in, train for it, have my absolute best shot for six months, see if I can make it to Kona. And if I make it great, I'll race it again. If I don't, don't keep trying to dig that Kona hole, because I think that's where a lot of people could get mentally and physically, you know, very damaged. Um, doing Ironman is very hard on the body. So I think I'll take one shot at it whenever my body is ready and take a real honest shot at it. And if I don't make it, I don't make it. I move on and still do triathlons, but just don't do it with the, um, the intensity that you kind of have to ride that razor's edge of health and performance when you're trying to compete at that level. 
Yeah, great. I, I admire your goal to uh, put in the work and, and go for it. Maybe I might get there one day in the, uh, I don't know, 80s, age 80 category or something, if I'm still <laughs> Me going. Me too. Maybe I'll come back. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, my focus is on longevity as well. I know a lot of people jump straight into triathlons and the first thing they want to do is an Ironman. Say, so, all right, I've done I've done a sprint triathlon, right? I'm going to jump and, and straight in to do an Ironman. Well, my kind of thinking is let's get, you know, make sure your body can function first, make sure you can go through the stages. That's why there is Olympic triathlons. That's why there is half distance triathlons, you know, work your way up all the way. So far, I've only done a half Ironman uh, last year. I was planning to do another one this year, but obviously it fell to bits. Um, so I'm planning just to, to be in the game for a long time. So there's no rush for me to get there. A lot of people just want to smash the body to bits and, and get there and do the first one straight away. So I admire the way you, your approach to that. Well, thanks. I, I find that in my experience, half Ironman's right up to there. You can compete in year after year and it's not too detrimental on the body or single sport endurance events, even if they're like stupid are easier on the body. Like I've done a 37 kilometer open water marathon that uh, was, you know, by all accounts, stupid, uh, but it's way easier on the body than swimming, biking and running for an entire day. And I have found that that Ironman level is kind of where you tip into, you know, real health issues that are, are tough to come back from if you're not careful. And even if you are careful, I've seen some, some evidence that even at the Ironman World Championship, where these people are supposed to be the fittest athletes in the world, 60% of them had massive hormone deficiencies. Because it's just, it's hard. It's really hard on the body. I think that, that just underlines the fact that you must build a base get your foundations right, you know, make sure you're strong from the inside and out, build your base. You know, if you can happily finish half Ironmans and feel strong at the finish line, then that's the time I think you need to think about doing an Ironman and not before. Right. The, the goal that I set for myself, and it's different for everyone, is before I stepped up to a new distance, I wanted to feel like I was more in control of the previous distance than it was of me. I wanted to feel like I wasn't just racing a sprint distance race, or I, I wanted to feel like I wasn't just finishing a sprint distance race and surviving it, that I was executing that race. And that's when I moved up to Olympic and that, and same sort of thing when I moved from Olympic to half Ironman and then half Ironman to Ironman. But I fully respect that Ironman is a very fun thing to try to train for and a fun goal to set. So if people want to go for Ironman, I'm, totally fine with that you just need to be very cautious and respect that it's a big task yeah and, that, and that's the ethos to take away from it i think so if there was uh, one thing you could say to everybody listening one thing that you'd hope they'd take away from this podcast today what would that be taryn that's a that's a really big question interestingly i haven't been asked that in this year yet and i think this year changes how I answer that. And it's that no matter what you're doing, I am now of the opinion after having a year to see how the world has reacted without races, it's to do whatever you're going to do, whatever task it is, whatever goal it is, whatever sport it is, do something because you're doing it for you. And when you start getting to that point of thinking, well, I've got to do a race or I've got to do my training. And you're not saying, well, I get to do this. I want to do this. That's when it starts getting into maybe you're not doing it for yourself. And I find a lot of people this year are starting to think more about what can they do that they enjoy that's for them, that they aren't just trying to keep up with what they think they need to do. Because when it comes right down to it, we're all just a bunch of adults that are trying to play endurance sports. And it's just a game and it's supposed to be fun. So keep it a game and keep it fun. And whether that's a trail run or a Grand Fondo or a Fell run or an ultra marathon or an Ironman, whatever it is, be excited about it. Exactly. That, that's absolutely brilliant. What a great answer that was, considering I didn't run the question by you before and just sprung it on you. That was a great answer. <laughs> and uh, I think it also applies to people, not only athletes, but people in general, 
you know, just look after yourself, do what you want to do and make it. It's just for you. If you want to change your nutrition, if you want to nail down, you want to feel better, do it because you want to do it. Don't do it because you're listening to us and we're telling you what's best. Do it because you want to do it. And I think that's a great message to get out there. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, yeah. hopefully people go into some races that they're jazzed up about next year. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> let's hope there is some, really are some races to go to. <laughs> yeah, <right>? exactly. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much for your time today, Taryn. Where can people uh, find you and where can people follow you if they want to hook up? If you look up triathlon Taryn, T-A-R-E-N, just about anywhere online, all the social medias, all the Googles of the world. There aren't a lot of triathlon Terrans out there that I'm competing with. So we'll be the only one that pops up. And you have your own podcast as well, right? Yep. Podcast, YouTube channel, uh, some books out there. We're pretty, we make it pretty hard to ignore us online. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for your time today, Terran. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is fun. That was great. Thanks to Taryn again for joining us at Human Nutrition and Lifestyle Podcast. Uh, I just want to pop on the end here a little summary about what we said, just so that you're clear on, on everything that Taryn talked through and everything that we had a little bit of a conversation about. I'm pleased Taryn shared his health problems that he's having here in 2020, because as he says, it's due to having bad nutrition in the past. If you're eating a high carb diet with processed food, it's just proof that it will catch up with you in the end. Two years, three years, 20 years down the line, it will catch up with you. It's doing things to your insides that you cannot see and you cannot feel. Eating processed foods containing bad vegetable and seed oils, high amounts of linolenic acid, which we talked about on earlier podcasts, it's just a slow poison and you are slowly poisoning your body from the inside all your inner cells of your body are being slowly poisoned by all of the processed food the vegetable oils and the horrible things you put in into it and whether you are exercising a lot or not you cannot outrun a bad diet Terran himself experienced this so change your nutrition today to avoid problems in the future. Terran also stated that he trains or works out 15 to 20 plus hours each week and because of this he has found the best way to fuel his lifestyle and it's to consume carbohydrates after his workouts and often train fasted or, or train fueled on fat. This ensures his body can burn both fat efficiently and also access his glycogen stores for a more high intense workout when needed. And by eating the carbohydrates after the workout, it then restores his glycogen stores ready for the next workout that day or the day after. So I'd just like to say, if you are not training as much as Terran, then this process could be altered slightly to ensure your body doesn't overwhelm those glycogen stores Yes, consume carbohydrates after each workout and then limit it for the rest of the day. Just continue with your proteins and fats and your nutrient-dense food. Now, Terran was a great guest and I am pleased he accepted my invitation and come on the show. I, I try my best for you to get some great guests on the podcast and Boy, do we have some treats lined up for you. Some massive thought leaders, some doctors, some PhDs and some nutrition specialists. All I ask from you in return is that you help me get the word out there. Share our Facebook group with your friends. Direct them to our Instagram. And now you can introduce them to our new website, humannutritionlifestyle.com. I'm pleased some of you are already beginning to tune in to a better way of eating, a better nutrient-dense nutrition. However, if more of you would like a free consultation, you can now book through our website. Just go to the services or the shop website and follow the instructions. If we have already spoken, then perhaps the first step into nailing down your optimum nutrient-dense nutrition 
is to get a personalised foundation day-by-day guide. This plan, this guide, is now available in the shop on the website. I have to charge a small fee for my time. However, as a podcast listener, we have an introductory offer for you. At 10% off if you use code HNLPOD. That's all capital letters, H-N-L-P-O-D. Use that discount at checkout to get 10% off. But like I say, if you just want to chat, then uh, click on the free consultation and I'll talk to you for free. I hope you're enjoying these podcasts and I'm working really hard to bring you some great guests. So be in touch with any questions you have and help me out a little bit. Share my good word to all your friends. Have a very nice day and I shall see you next time.